0: It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome to the American Outlaw's Pop Radio Network. I'm Ed Huglin, your host for today for the National Security Hour. Today, we have a special guest, Mr. Michael Haywood, Colonel Haywood, as I continue to refer to and bring on guests in what I call the American Patriot Series. I've had other American Patriots on prior, as we discussed the Palestine, East Palestine, Ohio der- derailment and chemical disaster, and also the repercussion, repercussions of that with Dr. Franco Musio. I've also had on uh, Mr. Roman Bueller where we discussed his leadership in pushing forth a new constitutional amendment to keep the nine, the nine SCOTUS justices in his collaboration with the Citizens Commission to Restore America and in releasing a directive to the Speaker of the House to support this amendment. The purpose of the American Patriot series, regardless of the political leanings of my guests, is to look into the lives, the lessons and efforts of real Americans who sacrifice daily for the security and advancement of our republic. Americans such as Colonel Hayward, today's guest, who've taken on risks, self-sacrifice, and in his case also served in our military to support and defend our constitution, to advance American values, and ensure our security and resilience for future generations of Americans to enjoy. So today we'll be covering some key insights Colonel Hayward has into Russia, as it is critical to understand the internal workings of Russia, its transition from the former Soviet Union and its black market economy under the control of oligarchs, to today's continued reality of what I consider a black market economy, where there is a tense truce between Vladimir Putin and the oligarchs, whereby they continue to flourish as long as they do not oppose, comment, or engage in political opposition to Putin. It is extremely important to understand an audience, that there's three specific timeframes time that Michael is going to discuss today, and it's related to his book, *The Spoils of War*. Michael will discuss first, 1991 to 99, the post-Soviet Russia, as he and I both engaged in the Soviet Union around this time. As I was engaging on on-site inspections, Michael was engaging with the post-Soviet economy and realities. Second. He'll talk about, from 99 to 2008, Putin's rise to power. And in our last segment, we'll talk about 2008 to present, as i engage engaged with Michael to get his assessment on what's next, his thoughts on the current conflict in Ukraine, Russia's relationships with China, and what's next. But before we begin, let me give you a little insight into Michael, who has an extremely interesting career. Michael Haywood attended the University of Kentucky on an athletic scholarship and represented Nike as a postgraduate distance runner. He later enlisted in the U.S. Army and served over 20 years as an intelligence officer within the U.S. Special Operations Command, retiring as a lieutenant colonel. He spent several years in executive protection before being sent to Moscow in 1997 as a representative of a billionaire who was the biggest investor in Russia following the privatization of the Russian economy. Colonel Haywood has spent nearly 15 years living and working in Moscow, and this is really critical because of his insights, 15 years inside the Iron Curtain. His book, The Spoils of War, recounts his experience and observations of the Russians' post-Soviet history and Vladimir Putin's rise to power. I've read this book, and I not only highly recommend it, but I say it's an essential read to better understand how Russia operates internally, but also to understand the potential opportunities on how the U.S. can engage with Russia to advance towards a more peaceful settlement in the ongoing war with Ukraine, and if not, how to upset and disrupt Russia to force him to the negotiating table. With that, let me turn to Colonel Haywood to provide some specific insights as he covers post-Soviet Russia. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you. I appreciate the introduction. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you, Michael. So why don't you go into the discussion as you talked about the privatization of the Russian economy and and the the emergence of the oligarchs oligarchs from your standpoint. Give us some insights from your perspective at what was happening in post-Soviet Russia during that time.
1: Well, as we know, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, it was December 1991, uh, and Yeltsin taking uh, assuming power in Russia, the big question is the economic development because that was the critical issue. Uh, without a significant change in the direction of the economy, Russia was definitely going to fail because the Soviet system had just totally uh, destroyed any economic opportunities, uh, and it was there was a, a very real possibility. Of a total economic collapse, a famine, and a of the dire consequences such a, an event would would entail. So the uh, the urgency was to change from the centrally planned economy that was prevalent under the Soviet Union into a market oriented economy. And the process that was used to make this transition was privatization, because everything was state owned prior to this point, and suddenly. Um, the state is not the owner. So, turning all the state assets into uh, private ownership and towards a more market directed economy was the key to unlocking Russia's great economic potential. Uh, you know, Russia, of course, has abundant natural resources. It had a very a highly skilled population. It had massive industrial assets, but it had no experience with capitalism or private ownership. So that transition was the key, uh, the key to unlocking Russia's potential.
0: So what what was interesting from my perspective at that time was uh and I went to the private sector after I left the Air Force uh, in 91, but and I dealt with uh, the, the uh, Russian administration as well, and there was a lot of art, outreach to the United States and different individuals in the United States to do as you're talking about, to try to move those companies towards privatization. But one of the things I found was interesting is that there was no coordinated aspect from the United States to then uh, assist the Russian uh, government in moving their economy to more capitalist society, given uh, most Russian experts understood that the Soviet economy was running on a black market economy. And as you note know, in, in your book, you know, United States bore no obligation to assist in Russia's political and economic transformation. But I agree with you. What you also say is that some modicum of oversight might have resulted in a different outcome. You know, we 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 didn't owe anything to Russia after the Cold War. However, uh, from my perspective, and based on what I'm, I'm reading in your book and stuff like that. I think we're in a common agreement that the U.S. could have done more to actually assist in the situation. What's what's your perspective on that?
1: Well, no, it's definitely true. I mean, as you with your background, you obviously know that uh, the the emphasis at the time was the nuclear arsenal that Russia possessed, reducing that, and getting the uh, weapon systems out of the uh, the other republics that had been part of the Soviet Union. So that was the U.S. focus. Uh, we had we basically totally ignored. Any type of proactive assistance on the economic side, sure. You know, the U.S. would go later on support IMF loans, World Bank loans, and that sort of thing. But you know, it was a paltry sum compared to amounts committed by uh, other countries uh, to achieve economic development. I mean, just look at the, the billions and trillions we spent trying to uh, bring a democracy to Iraq. I mean, we. The money we spent trying to assist Russia was just a paltry sum. Our focus was mainly on the wrong objective. Even though we had spent forty years pursuing a containment policy, once the Soviet Union collapsed, we just totally walked away, essentially, and bore no further uh, obligation or really any great buyer burning concern about what happens
0: next. So, so, so Michael, the. the- Great point there, Michael. So one of the things that I've I've mentioned before, and and, and it sounds like you're somewhat in agreement, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, is from my perspective, after being a Soviet studies guy for a a number of decades, the day we declared victory in the Cold War, from my perspective, we lost it. To your point exactly, we invested a paltry sum specifically focused on the nuclear weapons and stuff in Russia but not in helping transform the economy to a more capitalist, true capitalist economy. So why don't you give us some insights in terms of your perspective on on the oligarchs emerging and the rampant corruption at that time, and what was going on with Yeltsin and the whole struggle there?
1: Yes, uh, well, as as I mentioned earlier, the privatization process was the key, but the only problem is the implementation of this process uh, was eventually very corrupted from the beginning, so it was not able to achieve the the desired effect. So you had the province essentially had the government turning over uh, responsibility for uh, converting these massive industrial assets into the people actually running them at the time. Uh, they were referred to as the red directors. So the privatization process, basically, was they issued vouchers to all the Russian citizens, like 148 million vouchers, which would be used to get shares and individual assets. Well, the red directors who were the managers of these assets under Soviet Union, suddenly became the new uh, owners, essentially, uh, because the system was geared towards giving them a preponderance of the shares that would enable them to remain in place. So it was kind of, it was distorted from the very beginning. But from that point on, individuals started amassing greater and greater amounts of shares through the open market, the voucher system. And as a result, uh, oligarchs started to emerge by controlling these blocks of shares of the key industrial uh, targets, but the export industries, oil and gas, mining, the things that generated hard currency were the targets. So that's what, that was the initial, Creation of the oligarch class was evolving from the red directors and their first voucher. However, it changed as we approached 1996, and then this, the election, presidential election for Yeltsin, coming up in '96. At this point, Yeltsin's economic policies had been a disaster for the Russian population themselves, so they were still mired in poverty. Their savings had been wiped out by certain actions taken by the government. So Yeltsin's popularity was at an all-time low, and it became a, a matter of convenience that the oligarchs and government officials would come together to ensure Yeltsin's election uh, in 1996, and the process of that was loans for shares. So the government essentially gave controlling interests in all its major assets to the bank's run by the oligarchs in return for loans to the government. but the system was totally rigged and everyone knew it at the time but it was not you know it was not curtailed and these guys controlled the media so they were able to use their wealth and their control of the independent medias to influence the population and the vote and Yosin was reelected. But as a result of his re-election, he was totally beholden to the oligarchs, and they were given the second round of the long-term shares, which gave them the ultimate control over all these entities, the controlling interest in all these major entities where all their currency was being generated, hard currency.
0: So that's interesting, because when when I was back in the Soviet Union, you know, there were, in, in my opinion. Uh, a certain number of oligarchs that already existed because they ran the black market economy that, that actually the Soviet Union survived on. And so uh, I'd like to get your take in terms of, was this the same oligarch class then actually that then leveraged their already position sort of like, you know, in Chicago in the old days, the mafia controlled a lot of different things. Or even in today in the United States, you have smaller towns and in those smaller towns, you have a certain set number of individuals who actually... Control most of what happens within those towns, and so as you transition from Soviet to Russian economy, did you see a whole new class of oligarchs, or did you see the same uh, same oligarchs expanding their power base? Well, yeah, it was definitely decentralized
1: more at the beginning because all these assets and all the different parts of the country were more vulnerable to regional takeovers. Local guys who were able to assume control, but. The bigger players soon stepped in because they had more money they could actually buy shares on the market. Uh, They used their private banks that had government funds to begin with to uh, finance their acquisitions. So they quickly consolidated into the major industries. While there was certainly a black market economy working out on the side, you know, again, the focus was on the exporting uh, assets because that's where the real money was, the hard currencies. So the, the competition for those assets is what really set off the violent days of the banker wars and so forth in Russia uh, as they were fighting uh, for control of these entities. Now, as soon as they developed, when they acquired control, then that, the, the amount of wealth that, that generated just allowed them to dominate uh, the rest of the economy. So yeah, there's still a second tier, I would say, of the, the, the market being controlled by local, more local groups, more decentralized maybe a mafia type style because they were the ready they were ready to step in in the early days of the uh, the privatization. But as time passed, the bigger players came in and, and, and took over control of the major assets uh, and that was well you know that was the, the group of oligarchs. Some of them were the same from the early days. And they just flipped their wealth into acquiring uh, the bigger assets, but they were also new players that emerged. But by by 1996, there was still there was a core seven or eight that were really dominating the economy. And another thing was a factor in this time was Yeltsin's health. So after, uh, so after Yeltsin was able to protect or provide any guidance from the government. That really allowed the oligarchs to not only control the economy, but they gained influence over the government itself.
0: Excellent. So, so we're going to stop here for a second, take a short break, uh, and we'll come back. We'll follow up on that in terms of Yeltsin, his health, and what was moving on from there uh, in terms of the Russian economy. I'd like to remind our listeners: in America, Out Loud Talk Radio plays on the iHeart Radio network. You can also listen in on our media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in class applications available on Apple, Android, and Alexa, where we stream 24 by seven. And now you can also hear all the podcasts on these applications. Just go to AmericaOutloud.com. That's AmericaOutloud.com to get all the details. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's CofixRX.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at CofixRX.com.
1: Visit GenesisFogger.com forward slash outloud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has. Creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers.
0: Welcome back to the NASA Security Hour. On with me today is Colonel Michael Haywood, a retired army veteran with Special Operations Command, but also a man who's had 15 plus years in the former Soviet Union, in Russia itself, working with the oligarchs and working in the overall industrial economic complex there. So, as we left off, Michael was talking about Yeltsin's health, and so let's go back to Michael now and talk. At, let's what what happened with Yeltsin, and then how does that move to the financial crisis, and then uh, we move on to then Putin's rise to power. Over to you, Michael.
1: Oh, yes. Well, as, uh, as getting back to the Yeltsin's health, it would have been deteriorating. And by the time of the, the second election, when the oligarchs who had actually ensured his victory, uh, they were being rewarded for their participation and their support by getting control of these major industrial assets. And at that point, their influence within the Yeltsin and Yeltsin's family uh, they basically eliminated the ability of the central government to function as an independent entity. They, each each level of government was infiltrated by people being purchased by the oligarchs for influence and for favors so there was there was no there was no central government and this impacted not only in Moscow of course but without throughout the regions. all the regional governors who had been elected became more like a, it's more like a feudal system existed because the central government had no real control. And as a result, these guys operated pretty independently and that's where all the assets were that generated the wealth. So they themselves were enriched. So it was it was, it was a total chaos and no central government in charge. So the, the oligarchs stepped in and filled that void. Uh, by, this is where my personal involvement became more intense because My boss was the biggest investor in Russia, and it was through the Russian stock market where all these shares were being traded. And the problem was when the oligarchs took over control of the holding companies that were sitting on top of all these assets, he suddenly became victimized because they ran the companies that he owned the subsidiaries and they created the holding companies as far as the loans for shares to actually own the subsidiaries. So he was a minority shareholder at that point. And that's where the abuse opened up against minority shareholders. And that's where I got directly involved uh, battling the oligarchs because they ran the companies as if they owned 100%, even though they had maybe 51% or more. And my boss was a large minority shareholder. And that's where the conflict that we were partially engaged in began. And it led it up up to the 1998 financial crisis, which really broke the back of the first phase of Russian market development. It started in Asia, but Russia's emerging market, and when money, emerging markets offer high returns, but at higher risk. And when something happens globally, the emerging markets are the first ones to get hit, so money gets pulled out of of those particular markets. And Russia was part, at that time, the BRIC was the acronym used for it. So this began the process where my boss was being hit twice. Uh, The older RC controlled his companies were now stealing everything and devaluing the entities that he controlled. And the financial crisis was hit the overall market. So it's like a double whammy at that point. And that eviscerated the Russian uh, market. uh, And there was, from night it occurred in october 1997 but by august of 1998 uh, there was a financial crisis in russia they defaulted on their loans and devalued the ruble so that put russia in a very bad financial position for a number of years oh i'm sorry for leading up to 1999 when putin the period that marks putin's arrival on the scene
0: well before you before you go into putin's rise in this Let me ask a question from perspective of the Russian people then. So as the uh, buildup of the markets was taking place, the oligarchs were taking control, basically, as you said, running fiefdoms uh, rather than a central government. So it was somewhat chaotic overall. What was the feeling of the Russian people, given that there was once the great Soviet Union and now you had Russia and you have this disbanded set of fiefdoms? What was there feeling of chaos amongst the people, or were they they more uh, pleased with this? Uh, what, what's your perspective? Well, I tell you, Russians are amazingly apathetic
1: uh, in what's happening at the government level. They're more concerned with what's happening at their own personal level, and by and large, Russians are not Russians are not that politically active. So there was no great uproar uh, against the government. There was just, but the Russian population was still mired in poverty to a great extent. The middle class was slow in developing, but the Russians themselves kind of accepted, you know, they've been indoctrinated by 70 years of uh, of socialism that uh, that they just weren't that actively involved in the politics.
0: So that's interesting because uh, here you have, you know, the Russian people, when I dealt with them, were extremely resilient they put up with a hell of a lot of abuse, right? I mean, a lot of abuse. Right. And so here you have uh, Yeltsin getting into trouble. Uh, he brings, and I'll turn back to you in a second, he brings in, in Putin in this financial crisis here. But again, the government's not running this. And so I think it's important for the audience to understand is is the the situation in Russia for the people may not have changed significantly. But for the oligarchs and the power they've they've expanded and and attained, that's going to change fairly dramatically. Back over to you, Colonel Haywood. Oh
1: uh, yes. So by by 1999, the Yeltsin's uh, term is going to end uh, at the in 2000. So his health has been bad. They started looking who's coming. Who's who are we going to put in place uh, to succeed Yeltsin? Now, prime ministers have been you know. Yeltsin was a president but prime minister actually ran the daily operations of the government and he had gone through a whole slew of prime ministers they would never stay in the office more than two or three months it was a revolving door so Putin shows up he had been in the administration he brought had been brought from St Petersburg a couple of years earlier to serve in a, a one position of government and then he had been, he attracted the attention. They liked the way he was working, the success, the support he was giving to the Yeltsin family. So he was moved, uh, recommended by the oligarchs, uh, Berezovsky being one, uh, Boris Berezovsky, a, a very influential oligarch, to take chairmanship uh, or take the FSB and you know Putin's former intelligence officer. So it was a, a good fit. But, so he ran it up, he ran uh, the FSB for about a year and then they were looking for successor to Yeltsin in 99 and they put him forward so Putin came to uh, Moscow without any real known he was not a known entity he had no following no great support structure so he was like a fresh face coming in and I, my assumption is the oligarchs felt they could control him because uh, there's no reason to believe that he would be any different than the other prime ministers and they also considered him probably as a, a lame duck kind of guy that would just sit in the seat until uh, they could find a, a more longer term solution. And then you had, uh, they because, because of the bad health of Yeltsin, who's going to take, who would actually win the election, there's all these issues. So, you know, a crisis was created uh, with the invasion with the, the Chechen invasion, uh, the second one, the second Chechen war. Now I was in Moscow at the time when they started when the apartment bombs began. Uh, apartment bombings began, and that really provided the impetus for the Russian uh, the Russian population to support the second Chechen war because the Chechens were blamed for the apartment bombs. Plus, there was a lot of instability within the region of Chechnya, so that prompted that propelled. Putin gave him a, a, an opportunity to show his strongman persona and get results. And in the meantime, the oligarchs are supporting him and they're building it up in the news, the media, getting all the support that he needed. So by 2000, uh, 1999, the last day in December, Yeltsin resigns, makes Putin the uh, temporary acting president until elections can occur a few months later. So now Wilson's sitting I mean uh, sorry, Putin is sitting now he's the acting president of the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation waiting uh, and preparing for the elections.
0: So this is very interesting. so as as I like to look at parallels here. So even though this is Russia back in 1999, you have a crisis forming uh you have an economic financial crisis currently with a war going on. And when you look at today in the United States, you have an economic crisis forming, you have a war going on in the Ukraine. So there are some parallels here. But what's interesting in terms of then uh, Putin's maneuvering to then put a lock on power. Now, you said the Russian people were pretty apathetic about different things. You know, I would say American people uh, can be pretty apathetic uh, apathetic as well until they're driven to a, a bowling point on some issue. But in the atmosphere we're in in the United States, I'd, I'd like our audience to consider there's some parallels here. You have an administration from my standpoint that's gone very far left, uh, looking to do more control of, of things by the government, uh, shutting down key elements of our economy and stuff and controlling the industries much, much more and and there's so, so some, some parallels here. I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing, but let me turn it back to, to Colonel Haywood here, and, and uh, let's understand then from his perspective. So how did how did Putin actually then get in and then pull the reins of power into his into his breast? Well, I have to admit, when Putin uh, first
1: took over, I was uh, positively thinking, perhaps very optimistic, that he might be the right man for the job. I mean, from my perspective, intelligence officer taking over uh, the, the prime ministership and then acting president, uh, I assumed he was a patriot. It would probably put Russia's best interest forward. So, uh, so I initially started off with a very positive view, a fairly positive view of Putin and his potential. Now, what he, what he did, firstly, what the Chechen war gave him the public support. But he was very calculated. His first move was to rein in the regional governors, uh, because he knew he had to bring the central power uh, back to the government. Uh, so because Russia, uh, up until this point, was not functioning as a, a government being controlled by Moscow. So he, he unilaterally changed the way the Russian governors in all those 16 provinces were being uh, appointed. Uh, they became, instead of being elected, they, they uh, he, Issued a decree that the president would personally appoint the governor. So that immediately, he placed his own people or people who would support him in power in the regions. Now the regions were also where they, all the industrial assets are located. So this directly impacted the oligarchs. But the ultimate goal of Putin was to go after the oligarchs because they had interfered with the operation of the government. They had assumed control of the state, and he wanted it back. So that's what he did. He first went after, he first appointed the governors and then he went after the oligarchs. Uh, He he brought them in, he said, you can keep your property, you can manage your companies, stay out of politics. And that was issued in like early in 2000 before he was even elected.
0: And- That's very interesting because from my perspective again today in parallels, is we see uh, different branding of companies Uh, whether it's this ESG or other things in the United States. And for those companies that uh, do the green thing, do the ESG thing or things which the current administration wants, they're then looked upon. It seems to be more favorable. Now, again, not necessarily exact parallels, but those companies that are pushing opposite of that to actually drive energy and other stuff like that, it seems there's efforts to shut them down. So, it's a, just from my perspective, being a old, not only a Soviet analyst, but an old political analyst as well, an intel guy like yourself, I find that interesting. W- one of the things, though, I'd like to touch on that I think uh, for, for a sidestep here for a second is, you know, you have an extremely interesting background, right? So here you are in special operations. You're in the U.S. military, you're in the Army, right? You're an intelligence officer, but now you're in the reserve, but now you're back in Moscow, during all this activity, and you move from Intel officer to security details, to now you're dealing with a billionaire and billions of dollars of investments. I mean, that's very surreal in terms of a transition and mode. And so that must've been one hell of a challenge for you to come up to speed on. Can you touch on that for a second? Because I think that's that's very interesting as well as a part of the overall book and what what's going on at this time. Well, yes, I, uh, you yeah, know, I consider so myself fortunate. Uh, I was able
1: to get involved in certain aspects of the the military and operations that I had always fantasized about, but I did not have any background in economics. So I I left active duty because uh, there were some administrative issues on our our mission that were kind of impacting me and making my job less interesting. So after several years in that position, I, I went back as a reservist and I got hired for this billionaire as a security, and then After three years, I started traveling Russia in 1994 with analysts. So I started visiting companies even that early. But after three years of that, my boss asked me to go to Russia on the investment side and just help manage his portfolio. So yeah, I was fortunate. Um, it was not by any particular skills. I was adaptable. Uh, you know, I could go. I could move from one realm to the the other. Uh, fairly smoothly, uh, but not because of any great economic skills I had, because I had to learn on the job in that respect.
0: Yeah, but but that the, you know, so that's part of the aspect here that fascinates me is here. You're tossed into Russia. You're your primary liaison for this multi-billion-dollar uh, company and this individual, this billionaire in Russia, without an economic background, but based on your training and the background you have. You're quite adaptable to the different situations, but also based on your training and background that you have, uh, you have a great insight and a means of analysis of what's going on in front of you and then watching what things are unfold. So uh, before we go on to the, the next segment here, let's, we got a couple minutes left in this segment. Let's touch briefly because I want people to read your book because you go into great detail on what's happening at this time with the oligarchs, with Putin and Russia. And so give me about 30 seconds in terms of uh, uh, where Putin goes before we come back and talk about the, the next segment in terms of where Russia is now and where they're going for the present. Where Putin goes in from,
1: from the early days when he takes power. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so as Putin is, is, changing, uh, is changing the oligarchs, driving back central power and stuff like that, what we'll do is when we come back in this next segment, we'll start with, so what happens to Putin? How does he then consolidate his control? Um, and then from there, we'll go into uh, the final uh, discussion here about what happened 2008 to present here. Because again, I want people to read the book where all these details are spelled out. But before I go on break here, all of our shows go to podcast typically a day after the broadcast is heard here on talk radio. You can hear them on Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora and iHeart Podcast, and many more. So be sure to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts for me so I can understand whether we're getting across and the items that are interesting. But we'll be right back with Colonel Hayward to discuss Putin and and the future of Russia in just a moment. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health, and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
1: The wellness company shares your values and fights for medical freedom. They put patients before profits and follow medical science, not political science like doctors on the left. Their chief medical board, which includes Dr. Peter McCullough, are the makers of the incredible American-made, high-quality spike formula. If you worry about spike proteins, go to TWC.health and use promo code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount. Once again, that's TWC.health, promo code OUTLOUD.
0: So welcome back to the National Security Hour, uh, on today with our guest, Colonel Michael Haywood, uh, and talking about his, his book. Uh, and what we'd like to do now, Michael, is why don't you give us uh, a short summary of how Putin had consolidated his power, and then start let's start to talk about what happened from 2008 to the present, and where we're at today with Russia. Because I think the past is always very important for people to understand, and lessons and, and understand where Putin has come from and where he's going is, is going to be essential for how we deal with Russia in the future. So back over to you, Colonel Hayward. Uh Yes, as I, uh, we were discussing, uh, Putin initially
1: targeted uh, the oligarchs who had usurped the power of the state. And for those who resisted, he went after them individually and three of the more prominent ones ended up either being imprisoned or exiled from the country. At that point, there wasn't much opposition from the oligarchs because Putin now controlled the organs of the state, which was the ultimate power, which I think many of them forgot during the period of Yeltsin's rule, because they were influencing the organs of the state. But Putin is, again, considered himself a patriot. He took the power back, and then he started pursuing his own policies, Uh, and uh, the underlying uh, goal of his was to restoring Russia's uh, stature and what uh, it enjoyed during the Soviet Union. So that was the key um, objective and he was greatly assisted in his efforts by rising uh, cost for prices for the uh, exports, oil and gas and metals and so forth that the economy, that the Russian economy was driven by. With global expansion, global growth going on, Russia became uh, just the go-to place for all the natural resources and energy requirements that much of the world had to fuel the global growth that was occurring at this time. So he benefited greatly from rising oil prices, rising gas prices, put money into the treasury, and he would then turn and start building out the military again, uh, pouring billions of dollars back into uh, trying to build up the power of the Russia uh, forces, uh, by the same time building up, his, uh, installing his own people in these positions in the military and intelligence services. So it became a more closed society at the top. Um, and so by 2008, he had been he had been totally uh, in a place to. Rule Russia without much opposition. The only problem was the elections were coming up, and he was not eligible to run for two uh, for a president on the third term. But he just devised a scheme where he would just shift over to the prime ministership and still run the country. And that was the uh, the solution that uh, that they came up with and proved very effective. At this point, he was a dictator uh, by two thousand eight. And he, I will say that he had pursued sound economic policies, sound fiscal policies. So Russia was on a very good footing uh, when it comes to its financial uh, condition. But that was totally separate from any policies that he was implementing uh, towards his ultimate goal of, of bringing Russia back.
0: It was. It's interesting because I, I see him, uh, based on his KGB years and KGB training, been able to use that training and understanding how to consolidate his power but also how to drive strategic narratives against his, his adversaries who he perceives as adversaries or as you said with the oligarchs that he didn't want he basically again used the state powers to basically lock him up and throw away the key and take them out so it's a very interesting perspective is that using that background and understanding from whence he came but he never seemed to, like Peter the Great, he never seemed to really get beyond that sort of dictatorship and former Politburo type role and move Russia towards a more robust economy beyond the energy or minerals market, which it had tremendous potential to do based on my insights with the different industries and stuff they had in, in, in uh, across Russia. So what's your perspective on that? And as you as talk about the next steps with with Putin, why didn't he expand the other elements of Russia's economy and just focus just on energy and minerals? Is it just the money or control or what? Well, it was the, all the,
1: uh, the cash-generating assets, but the issue really undermined uh, the underlying problem was corruption. Russia, corruption was rampant throughout every sector of society. And Although he pursued sound fiscal policies, he didn't eliminate the corruption. He just fostered it by putting his own cronies back in, in positions of controlling uh, you know, the state entities like Gazprom, the oil, I mean the gas, major gas company, or Rosneft, the major oil company. His guys you know, were controlling those. So I mean, you could never escape the amount of corruption that had penetrated every aspect of Russia's society. So we even see that now in the military um, because you know, one factor of influencing the, their performance in Ukraine has been the corruption that ate away uh, at the military itself. So there's no one escaped the impact of corruption, which I think is probably the number one factor uh, inhibiting economic growth or the society developing properly. Uh, we see it all the time around the world. And Russia was, certainly was not a, an exception, and Putin was unable or unwilling to tackle that particular problem.
0: That's interesting. So, because back when I was, you know, I was doing a Soviet study and in intel uh, puke as well, uh, we had great insights to to the same issue. Is that uh, within the military, the way a lot of the different military units and other things functioned was through the black market economy and get certain things from the state. And many of these uh, military elements were left to defend for themselves for the most part. Yeah, they got some state monies. They got some basic pay from the state, such, but to actually do anything in, in their realm, they had to, uh, to sort of work the black market on their own. So it's interesting that you say as Putin came in and consolidated this stuff, the, that corruption continued to be rampant and existent. And the reason why that's important from my perspective, for our audience to understand is is you know Putin does have a power base he does have control and he is a dictator but that power base only goes so far so as michael continues to discuss from his perspective uh where putin is and where he's going here uh i'd like you to touch on that from your 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 viewpoint michael is you know how strong of a grip does putin have and what are what are his potential weaknesses well
1: unfortunately from my perspective uh, there is not a whole lot of uh, opportunity for any meaningful opposition to impact his behavior uh, that may draw him more towards a like a peaceful settlement in Ukraine for example it just doesn't exist he, the people around him are invested with him uh, and he's, he's he's taken the path that he, uh, has has determined restores Russia's great status as well with him at the leading the uh, the government. So it's a matter of, at this point personal ambition, and he doesn't really seem to me to care much about the Russian people or this pain and suffering they may have to be uh, subjected to. They have to endure because, as you mentioned, they are extremely resilient. Um, that's not his focus. His focus is to achieve his results. And basically, just zipping back to 2008, the financial crisis really, in my opinion, pushed him over past the, the breaking point where he decided the time to end American dominance in global affairs it was was now, because the financial crisis was, Russia was strong economically, fundamentals of the corporations were good, but nevertheless, Financial crisis uh, emanating from Western capitalism uh, again, greatly impacted Russia itself. And at that point, he had no, no doubts anymore that it was time to make a change and the global security structure and end American dominance. And he's pursued that policy since then uh, from my viewpoint. That's his ultimate objective. And the the oligarchs, who are now in power? Uh, they are totally again. I go back to the he controls the security services, and they are totally powerless. You know, at the end of the day, despite the amount of wealth they may have, they are powerless against the the, the security apparatus and the ability to strip them of their wealth and thrown in jail overnight uh, exists. So, I don't see that as a meaningful group of opposition. They are more subservient uh, to Putin, and I don't see any any avenue that his behavior is going to be altered by any type of internal dissent. Uh, from my perspective, of where, we, where are we going? Well, obviously, right now, the conflict in Ukraine is a major focus. Uh, Putin has been in power, at least as a Dictator since uh, for at least 15 years as an absolute dictator. He's bypassed all the wealth he could possibly hope for, but what he lacks is a, a more influential voice on the global affairs. Russia has all the natural resources it needs, but its economy is weak, it has thousands of nuclear weapons, but it's still third rate in many aspects.
0: Oh, so on that, let me ask you a question, because, you know, I have my perspective. I always like to get different people's perspective, especially since, you know, you were there for uh, almost two decades. So my perspective as an intelligence analyst is that that Russia is, in fact, a failed state. The only reason the failed state continues to operate is, as you said, one, through, through sheer terror and control of the authoritarian powers and two, by continuing to pump gas because that's perhaps, you know, and maybe sell some minerals. But besides that, you said third-rate country, uh, even though they have massive number of nuclear weapons, you know, and that sort of scares the hell out of me, because uh, if Putin, for some reason, meets his demise, you have all those nuclear weapons, you have a third-rate country run by the oligarchs, If and Putin's demise goes and someone doesn't step on in, you could have a complete... Uh, Disarray across all of Russia. What, what's your perspective on on that? Given where we're at right now, if something happens to Putin,
1: well, it is a pretty scary thought because I I don't see a structure in place that can step in and assume power without any great uh, uh, pushback from other aspects, other groups within the nation, uh, within the country. So it's a scary thought. I mean, w- we don't want Putin uh, to remain as the leader of Russia at the same time, what's the alternative? (laughs) That's uh, something that no one's figured out yet. And I don't see any clear cut option. I mean, ideally, of course, in the the perfect world, Russia would uh, wake up and realize they could be an influential player in the global community, in Europe. They have all that's required. They have the economic potential the military, at least on the nuclear side, that makes them always a, a serious player. They have everything they could possibly need to make them a major player, and yet they, they've squandered that opportunity, uh, chasing one man's ambition to restore Russian uh, Russian empire. And that's
0: very, no, no, that's very interesting, because I, I have somewhat the same type of perspective. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear someone say it because for me, what, what I'm seeing with, with Xi, and so even though Putin's, you know, he pushes power, Syria, some other places he talk about in the book and, and how he consolidates the power and how he expands his economic his economic stakes. But if we take a look at what Putin and what he's doing, again, he doesn't care about the Russian people. He cares about his power and keeping the power. But I see Xi from China basically playing him like a fool because to the point you just laid out. Russia has the potential for great economic impacts and play in the world, but it means they have to become part of more of a capitalist society and a little bit more of a free society to empower and enable and put in the structures for those that economy and those capabilities to actually go to fruition. You know, and, and, and during your time and my time, we've seen thousands of people flee Russia, specifically their, their high scientists and technical engineers and stuff because of that oppression. So in that scenario I laid out, I would see Xi as being the primary beneficiary of that if Putin was taken out or was removed for some reason, although people would like that in many different cases, myself included. The alternative is somewhat scary, is that then who goes into that power vacuum? Well, Xi and China is probably the most positioned, I would think. But, but what's your take on that? Because China also has a big, they know how to run economies aspects.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when you look, you're talking long-term threats to American security. It's no doubt China is number one. I mean, Russia is the immediate threat because they're reckless and they they possess again the vast nuclear arsenal, which they could potentially actually use besides just threatening to use. China, on the other hand, has always taken a long view. But I think uh, Xi right now is he's basically created another uh, cult. Um, he's somewhat emasculated the, the central uh, the Communist Party's ability to really uh, counter some of the more uh, aggressive or uh, actions that, that uh, he may want to take. He's eliminated a lot of the, the potential opposition to himself. So yes, at the end of the day, you know China, China is a great consumer and Russia is right next door with massive natural resources that China needs. so, I would certainly, if I was uh, sitting in in Beijing, I would be looking at somehow what's the scenario that we can actually gain access to Russia's natural resources. So that's there's got to be somebody playing that war game someplace, I'm sure.
0: And well, well so on that point, let me we got about the two minutes left here, uh, but let me give you about a minute at a time. I. I'd like to, based on your background and your wealth of experience, you know, fascinating book here, The Squirrels of War, is give us your take on what's next for Russia and what would you suggest we do with Russia?
1: Well, unfortunately, I have a, a very uh, negative view of the future. I, I, in my opinion, Russia, had, or Putin has two options. He can continue uh, feeding men into the Quadmar and Ukraine and eventually. Uh, hope that the West resolve uh, is weakened. We have elections coming up; all that can impact. Or he could, com- or he could decide he can't gain what he needs to do now. He convinces the Russian population that he tried to defend Russia. He came up against the might of the U.S. and European, and he was just too weak at this time. So we retreat back to wherever they end up retreating back to, and rebuild and next time we're going to do it right. To me, those are the only real options he has. I don't see him leaving otherwise because he's got nowhere to go. (laughs) I mean, uh, so I'm very pessimistic about what's going to transpire in Russia. And unfortunately, I don't see the Russian population as going to be the groundswell uh, of, uh, of opposition to what he may want to do in the future, and that that's a scary scenario. I don't see any great positive things happening in the short run. I don't see Putin backing out and just leaving.
0: Well, well, Michael, uh, Colonel Haywood, uh, it's been a real treat uh, having you on today. Uh, and so, again, to our audience, uh, Colonel Haywood goes into in-depth discussions on the oligarchs, the battle and such, and it gives you some really great perspective in the spoils of war where he recounts his experiences in post-Russian history, Vladimir Putin. And if you heard today, gives us some real good insights in terms of what was happening with the oligarchs and such. It's an extremely well-written book, and as a Soviet studies guy, you know I'd recommend it from that perspective. But just from an American's perspective, to understand the Russian mindset, I think it's well worth the read and such like that. So, Michael, thank you again for joining us today and educating our audience on the NASA Security Hour. I'm here on the National Security Hour to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. I will go outside the fog and daily chaos to give you a strategic perspective on national security issues and speak truth to power, the power of we the people, so we together can best ensure the resilience and security of our republic. Thanks for joining us on the mission. The National Security Hour is the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America.